1: It's the second
2: time it's gone on. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those guys. That's yeah. They have asked for that, really.
3: Oh, you can laugh. the World
1: Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be
3: like me. You don't know what
2: you're talking about.
0: What did you done? I need to stay alive. All right, now, days, I'd say it to you, but I'll say it
2: to, you, say it to
1: you now. I'm down Down Twankfield, and we'll see 20, them. 20. What you are doing down here, you show me, man? <laughs> it's the Irish Times Second Captains Football Podcast. Hi Ken.
4: are you doing? Know? Uh, Thank you for having me. My earlobes there.
1: Well, I want to start. I mean, it's been a it's been a good week. Has it? I mean, we're forgiving bunch, Ken, Irish sports fans, which is why the retirement of Thierry Henry this week has sparked such an outpouring of warm nostalgia and kind sentiments yeah. towards one of the greatest footballers of his generation. Yeah. It was a bit much. I mean, nobody died, Ireland is okay. Thierry's still around and you're going to see a lot more of him yeah. uh, for his massive 4 million pound a year contract in Sky Sports in the next few years.
5: Absolutely incredible, yeah. isn't it? I mean, Thierry is earning twice the average, more than twice the average salary for a Premier League footballer as a pundit for Sky. Why are they the paying most, him is that he the much?
4: the most overpaid man in, in British football.
5: Four million to be.
4: I got, I got, it's a funny one, Ken. I mean, you're you're.
5: What's he going to sec- say? Well, this is
4: the
1: second time this week that you've seemed to have been stunned by the um, the massive growth of. Sports business and sports broadcasting. What was the first time? The BBC Sports Personality of the Year. You were, oh, bro- yeah. You, were, you found that a little grotesque, and I got to say, Ken, I hadn't watched it at the time you we were speaking. Yes. Having watched it afterwards, I got to <laughs> say it's gotten a little bit bloated. I will say that when you record something, yeah. when you record an award ceremony for two hours and twenty minutes, yeah. and you still miss the end, it cuts off before the end. Yeah. You know, it's gotten a small bit. It's taking itself a, a tad too seriously. Yeah,
5: they they could do with getting you know a sort of a Lenny Riefen style figure on board just to, to <laughs> trim it down. You know, to get to to make it. A more kind of a modest uh, production, you know, less bombastic. Um, the, uh, but I mean, four million, four million a year. It's a Henry, I, don't, I, I mean, where is the incentive for him to improve? You know what? If he gets, if he actually becomes a pundit who's worth listening to, are they going to end up paying him sixteen million a year? Yes. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe I don't know. I mean, but I'd like to see him. I'd like to see them sort of say, okay, Thierry, you know, you are actually not very good at this, yeah, and uh, you're just starting out, so. How's about we give you a million a year? He was
4: reasonably good in um. I in thought the World for the, the World Cup, he looked uh, very much at home. Uh, he's relaxed in Very relaxed. In the area. Very relaxed um, and very confident, you know. So you would kind of watch him and it's like, God, this guy, he's so relaxed. He's so confident. He must be very, very good at this job. And that kind of got me through to like the quarterfinals. <laughs> yeah. I was like, wait a minute. I've been watching him for about a month <laughs> now. And he hasn't actually said anything other than look extremely well in a pair of uh, uh, loose fitting chinos <laughs> and shirts. Uh, he
5: now, in fairness, he blew the audience away with a, with a uh, five hundred and thirty pound Gucci cardigan one of the days. Yeah, I oh, mean no, it wasn't I mean, was as though he was saying, uh, you know, asking who was he on with Charles. You know, how much, Adrian, how much do you think this cost? No, he wasn't no, saying no, he that. He was on the
1: DB, he was on
5: with Gary Lineker. Gary Lineker, yeah. you know, he, was, he wasn't saying that. He, you know, he, he was just looking great. And people were like, wow, yeah, that looks, looks amazing. Looks and then great. they were like, where can I get that cardigan? And then people were like, oh, it actually costs like £500. It's Gucci, yeah. It's supposed to hear Henri, he makes a lot of money.
4: Yeah, but I, I just think that, you know, they already have one extremely well-dressed and polite and not very insightful pundit, who they're, I presume are paying quite a bit of money. Uh, who? Jimmy right Oh, sorry, yeah. Gary Neville on.
1: <laughs> and uh, sorry, I still thought
4: we were talking about BBC for something. Yeah. Time. So I mean, I, four million pounds is—it's an extraordinary amount. It Really, really is. And you know, he's the kind of guy you throw in on a Champions League night when Arsenal are playing yeah. Bayern Munich. It's yeah. like, oh, Thierry, Henry's Thierry
5: there. Henry. Thierry Henry, Hullet.
4: Yeah. Like, oh, that's interesting. You know, like, I, I, that—that that seems to me like he might say something fresh and new. But watching Thierry Henry every single week. Looking laconic. Yeah, but you've both um, forgotten
1: his one key co- uh, contribution to BBC's coverage. Go on. Do you remember when he was asked by Robbie Savage? Robbie Savage was talking about a, an underdog playing against a great team, and he said, Oh, you know, when we played against Thierry here, for example, for Leicester, we'd be swarming all over him like wasps mm. or something like this. Yeah, you, you know, and, and Thierry, you struggled with that, didn't you? And Thierry Henry deadpans and says, We managed.
5: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is a good, uh, yeah. No, they, they but, usually who's at yeah. Birmingham Blackburn that Robbie Savage was playing for, they they usually gave them a damn good thrashing in oh, fairness, yeah. Although, you know, not so much since Thierry Henry left, but, yeah, I mean, it's not as so, though I mean, the thing about Thierry Henry is he's a he's a, such a controlled and reserved um character, it's like he's almost icy. I find him, I find him to be cold, uh, and sort of, uh. I don't, I don't feel he's giving us the full story. But sometimes, Owen, the mask does uh, slip a little bit. And you get a sense of the volcanic uh, temperament within that, that he's working so hard to control all the time. This is how I'm always going to remember Thierry Henry.
2: And, uh, you know, against a team like Barcelona, you know, holding like we did for a very long time, it was, it was more than difficult. But on the other side, I'm just saying that sometimes some calls in the game... I don't know. Well, a bit strange. Next time I'm going to learn how to dive, maybe. To stay and they try to kick me in my knee, kick my ankle from behind. But I'm not a woman, so I always stay on my feet. But I always expect the ref to do his job, but I don't think he did. You held out for so long, even though they had so much possession. Were you starting to believe we could do it? We could do it with 10? Yeah, of course, but I think at the end of the day, they can be happy. I see them celebrating, but, you know, we played that ten the whole game. And I think, you know, considering two goals at the end of the game like that, all the time you talk about Ronaldinho and everything, but I didn't see him today. And I saw uh, Henry Carlson. Two times he came on. That was the key of the game. So sometimes, I think all the time, you talk about Ronaldinho and and people like that. Talk about the proper people sometimes make the difference. And that was Henry Carlsen tonight on two assists. Because I didn't see no Ronaldinho and I didn't see no Eto'. And I would have liked to see a proper, a proper rep also.
5: What do, you, um,
1: <laughs> what do you like so much about that? <laughs>
5: That's Jerry Henry um, talking himself out of a move to Barcelona, uh, which he had to postpone for a year in order to allow everyone to get over. Uh, let's say he just said so much real real stuff he brought in that a lot interview. Of treats to that, uh, <laughs> he fairly
1: he he disparaged some of his opponents soon-to-be teammates, anyway.
5: I didn't see <laughs> no didn't Ronaldinho. <laughs> I didn't see no to.
4: Didn't Eto score the equalising goal?
5: Yeah. In that, uh, yeah, okay. Etto yeah, knocked in the equaliser there, Terry. He did the thing that you twice failed to do in that final from good chances. I mean, he, he missed a couple of chances. Missing from Thierry Henry's searing critique of the 2006 Champions League final, because that's what that was, in which the referee's mistakes... Um, were uh, were dissected, and the no shows of Ronaldinho and the no show of Eto who only scored the one goal, um, missing from that was a critique of his own performance, in which he missed the sitter after f- a few minutes when it was still eleven against eleven, and then had another good chance in the second half, the kind that he made his name scoring really, um, and and had a, had a shot which I think was too close to the keeper, maybe it went wide, but I think I seem to remember it being saved too close to the goalkeeper. And, Terry and should have scored in that game. And he didn't, uh, and he exploded at everybody else. Everyone else got the blame. And after that, he he was he was so talkative that night. I think he grabbed the microphone on the on the plane back to London. Uh, you know, I know everyone here is pretty depressed. I know that it's tough to take after what happened to us there. But don't worry, because I'm going to stay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know you, yeah. we've lost the, the match of our lives, but I will remain at Arsenal next season. I had been thinking about leaving, but I cannot go and join that team after what they did to us tonight. Uh, you know, this is more or less what happened, uh, I, I hear. Time for Ken Erdys, report on sport. He was doing a lot of talking, Ken,
1: around that match, because it's just popped into my head that I'm almost certain that was, it was, it was the Champions League final where he did a pre-match press conference that went on for about three and a half hours. Really? Oh, it was Thierry Henry at his most introspective. It was actually quite interesting, but the typical Thierry Henry, I think everybody watching, immediately we decided, this is really interesting. It's a guy talking about his own... And he talked about how his demeanour on the field and his not celebrating sometimes and Ugh. all these sort of things, uh, how much football means to him. And A lot of people thought, I think I thought it was great at the time. Yeah. Looking back now, maybe.
5: Yeah, this is maybe the kind said, of thing, oh. you know, someone should say aren't you supposed to say this kind of stuff about the game? And you know what I mean? I don't know. I, I, see, I never I never quite got that sense of Thierry Henry that he really honestly meant what he said, except in that interview. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's what, He really meant what he said there. Um, but, you know, I mean, he was an amazing player. Um, and one of the amazing things about him is that he never managed to score in a final. It's incredible. When you think about his, his career, he scored a goal every two games... Uh, over the length of his career, but when he was really good, he was scoring two every three games. And, I mean, that was before anyone was scoring a goal a game. You know what I mean? I'm sure that if Thierry Henry was playing, was, was, you know, 25 today, he would also be scoring a goal a game in the way that Messi and Ronaldo are doing. Something changed. I mean, whether it's offside or, I don't know, maybe the the new footballs. (laughs) One way or another, a goal a game seems to be the kind of... That's that's the standard for yeah, a I was really good ask you striker. Actually,
4: is that like when a goal every two games was seen as, you know, that was the mark. Yeah. Are, are you saying this is rather uh, broader than just Harry Henry, But uh, are you saying that people are just happy to hit that and, may, and maybe exceed that slightly? Say Ruud Van Nistelrooy was seen as like this goal scoring phenomenon yeah. that he could get a, two goals every three games. Yeah. What well, is it just that you actually think Messi and Ronaldo are just pushing, you know the the owner wouldn't be satisfied with scoring two every three. Therefore, he'd score a goal again.
5: Well, the thing, the weird thing about I think it is like There
4: are no rule changes. There are no... Well, there no, was, there, the, off-side, the offside
5: rule change—that—that That is a significant change. I mean, the fact that you can be... Moves that previously would have been flagged up for offside are no longer offside now, except in special circumstances. So it increases the playing area. It means there's more space in the field. Um, that happened in 2005, I think. So that was actually just as Thierry Henry's kind of peak years were coming to an end. I think that, I mean, I was talking about the chance he missed in 2006 Champions League final. I don't think he was really fully fit. I don't think he really was fully fit that season. Um, maybe if he had been, he would have scored. Maybe that's kind of some of the anger that was coming out in that interview, the sense of, I've, I've made it here and I wasn't really able to do myself justice and it's not fair.
2: Yeah.
5: And Ronaldinho, who's just won the Ballon d'Or for the last two years. And I just got to turn up wearing a Che Guevara T-shirt. <laughs> I've been way better than he has, and uh, and nobody recognises my talent. My talent is criminally underappreciated by the world. I'm, I mean, this is just an imaginary Terry Henry really internal monologue. I don't know if that's really what was happening in his head.
1: Uh, Roy King,
5: Um Roy Keane. We managed to get
1: through the, the entirety of our chat without actually mentioning a certain incident. Uh,
5: the Richard Dunn, the going over to talk to Richard Dunn after the. I
1: like the way you said that after the handball. Yeah, I think I think it's been established by many people this weekend that that was the true travesty. Yeah, It was. Being well, that was so just the inex-
5: really inexplicable.
1: Whatever about the handball itself. Well,
5: I was thinking about the handball again. I was like, you know, the weird thing about that handball is, I honestly don't think it would have even occurred to most players to do it.
1: Might have occurred to Robbie. And that was always my argument, even at the time. How would we have reacted if Robbie had done it? I've never seen...
5: I can't remember Robbie Keane doing that. I think it would have been okay.
1: No, I know, but he wasn't in that exact But position. I mean, the, the
5: idea of uh, rather than... Usually when you see the red-hand ball, it's either um, the guy saving a ball on the line mm-hmm. or, you know, trying to get the ball away from an opponent by, by desperate means he's about to score uh, or punching the ball sneakily into the net. And you've seen loads of players do either thing. I mean, Maradona and Suarez have done both... Um uh you've seen Jack Charlton do the saving on the line thing and uh seen tons of we've seen millions of players do it. You know, it's quite a normal it's 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 not wow, I can't believe he thought to do that. It's kind of like it, it doesn't happen so much now that you get sent off for doing it as well, and it's a penalty and a red card. When Jack Charlton did it, Jack Charlton did it in the World Cup semi-final, he didn't care. You know, he he punched the ball off the line, knowing that the only punish, punishment was gonna be a penalty, and you know, I don't know if he even got booked for it. Yeah. Did he even get booked for it? In that? Anyway, he played the final, so it wasn't a problem. You know, when Luis Suarez did it, he had to give up playing in the semi-final. Uh, that's that's what he knew. He was. The uh,
1: reason was different. Why?
5: Because it wasn't. Um, it was a more. It was sort of integrated into a into a flowing move. Away it was the, the
4: the last act of a desperate man. It, no, was just, it was like I'll just facilitate my setting up an assist for William.
5: Gallagher. I'm just going to control the ball in my hand as part of the play. You you actually rarely see that, um, and I honestly don't think most players would even have, have have thought of it. So I I suppose what I've got to say is congratulations to Jerry <laughs> Henry for for seeing the possibility that most players wouldn't have seen. He he made a career ba- uh, built on, you know, built on his ability to to see things that other players couldn't see.
1: Roy Keane was one of the few men at the time who didn't lay all the blame at the door of Thierry Henry or the referees. That was Shake It was Shake Given with a little bit of Paul McShane thrown in there. But, yeah. uh, but,
5: the, but the going up to, I mean, I don't know if, if Roy Keane saw that. Did, did make Maybe Roy Keane switched over to, I don't know, Hollyoaks at the end of the, at, as soon as the final whistle went or, or when the equaliser went in and he never got to see Thierry Henry going over to sit with Richard Dunn, mm. Because if he had seen that, I can't imagine he would have he liked that. Do you think Roy Keane would have liked that? No, I mean if you know he was talking about how you know Mourinho would risk getting knocked out trying to shake someone's hand before the final whistle was gone in Park football. How Roy Keane would have reacted had the had Henri come over and sat next to him in those circumstances? Mm. I don't know, but it it seemed to me that that was like uh, that was actually a revealing moment about Henri. It showed he 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 doesn't really get uh, human beings in a way. (laughs) He's a kind of a brilliant, icy cold. Um, uh, I don't know. I think he's a little bit. He's a little bit emotionally strange.
1: Dunn said afterwards that he hadn't realised at the time. I don't think he'd realised the extent of the handball. Uh, even though <laughs> himself and his teammates were just circulating wildly that it had hit Henri's hand. Uh, anyway, I, I, I said we'd gotten through without mentioning it. Now yeah. we've mentioned it. We've made a couple of points. Let's move on to Keane.
5: Well, the story in the Sun is that, and I mean, the Sun claim Roy Keane. Uh, Obviously, he's got a bit more time on his hands now. That was the idea of, of uh, resigning from one of his two jobs. And uh, in this time off, he was brooding over the fact that reports kept emerging of um, uh, bus stops between him and various Villa players. Now, fairly tame bus stops, I have to say. I mean, they've been reported in a couple of newspapers. The Daily Mail certainly had, some, had an account of uh, 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 an ill-tempered exchange with Fabian Delph, um, uh, you know, there have there have been reports that Keane was at war with Gabby Agbonlahor and Fabian <laughs> Dell, you know. Uh, but obviously, Paul Lambert has said at all times, that's, that's nonsense. And the relationship was great. It was just, we felt it was time to part company. Yeah. Um, so Keane uh, was there and he's, he's he's looking at all these reports and somehow gets the idea. Now, this is according to The Sun, right? Yeah. And all the other newspapers are reporting according to The Sun. So the son's like, Keen said, You know who I think is might be behind some of these stories? Tom Cleverly. Tom Cleverly, I think he's been blabbing to the media, to his buddies in the media, about certain lies about myself. Mm. So what he then does, according to, according to his son, <laughs> is go over to Tom Cleverly's <laughs> house. <laughs> he, Cleverly obviously lives in a, in a gated mansion. Mm. walled, gated mansion. And I suppose ring the bell and, and try and get Tom Cleverley to come out so they can have a little chat about some of these so-called lies that have been gone into the media. But Tom Cleverley doesn't come out. Doesn't answer the door. So according to this story, Keane hangs around outside the Cleverley, Shay Cleverley, for 15 minutes before eventually going home. Now, is it true? Who knows? Is it... Uh, supposedly he's on the CCTV. This is what the reports are claiming. Uh, I, I haven't seen the CCTV myself. Can't vouch so, for... So,
4: the, was there any mention of whether Tom Cleverley was, Cleverley was in the house and cowering, <laughs> watching Roy I mean, Keen- maybe
5: maybe he was just going over to pick him up for a round of golf. And Cleves, it turned out... Does Keen play golf? Don't think no. so. Golf is one of those things he doesn't like. No, I've... it's he's not really a golf golf. Oh, no, no, remember, guy. He, he
1: hated the Ryder Cup. That that came out around the time of his book.
5: <laughs> he hated the Ryder Cup. <laughs> yeah. um,
1: is it anything to do with Alex Ferguson being a part of the Ryder Cup? Oh, that's so, right. Yeah, that's yeah,
5: right. Of course, yeah. he'd given yeah, the yeah yeah. Well, oh, people were trying to put the Ryder Cup on the Villa players. Yes, we're trying to put it on TV, yeah. and he was like, "We're not watching this. Yeah. We're watching rugby league." He loves he loves rugby league, <laughs> 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 but uh, anyway, where are we? So that's that was just the last story. Yeah. Now, I, I mean, it's it's a, it's obviously only a minor story, on, so let's not spend any more time on it.
1: Well, let's talk AVB. Well, it's, it, this is Coach Rogers, really. But uh, well, look through it's, the prism of Andre villas This
5: is the big this is the big issue it seems in English football this December of 2014. Uh, Andre villas of course, is no longer part of English football; now part of Russian football. Um, he is. Uh, as coach of Zenit St. Petersburg. But it's about a year ago that he was, well, we thought sacked, but he, he, he disputes that by Tottenham Hotspur. So he was talking to Portuguese TV, and he said some interesting things. He said, um, and this is just classic, I've forgotten how much I love the way that he speaks, uh, the chairman proposed a challenge to increase Tottenham's competitive level. <laughs> like, propose the charge to increase the competitive level. I, I mean, I would love to have seen the dinner between Daniel Levy and Vespasman that happened. But immediately Modric left, and we didn't get any of the targets I'd identified, such as Dramatino, William, Oscar, or Leandro Damier. There were promises that were not kept. I had a group of players I had not chosen. In two years, I lost Van der Vaart Modric, Bell, and all the promises made were unfulfilled. Tottenham set a points and victories record in my first season missed out in the Champions League by one point and had a great run in the Europa League in the second season the time I left we had more points than in the previous campaign I ended up leaving by mutual agreement I was not sacked because I gave full support to the football director Franco Baldini despite him having other ambitions meaning that I ended up with players that did not fit the profile I wanted um, and then he mentions, I speak of Franco Baldini, who came from AS Roma and is now in a down position, exiting the club. Uh, but I don't look at my time at Tottenham as a negative experience. It was an experience I needed to have. But that's another good one, a down position, exiting the club. Uh, newsflash for Franco Baldini, by the way, who hasn't, there's been none of this coming out of Tottenham, but Villas-Boas evidently has heard, or thinks he's heard, uh, that Baldini won't be there for too much longer. But it's funny that we were only talking about this on Monday. Um, uh, in terms of that, he's not really saying anything radically different. He's just giving a bit more detail. <clears throat> I think that line about Baldini is interesting. Mm-hmm. Football director Franco Baldini, despite him having other ambitions. I mean, presumably the ambition of Vils Boas was to, was to uh, let me see, um, meet the competitive challenge proposed by Daniel Levy. To qualify for
1: the Champions League in layman's terms, sort would of said.
5: What? I was I don't the believe he's an ambition man. of Franco maybe. Baldini. Yeah, what was Baldini? Up if to? it was another ambition, what was that ambition? I mean, he ended up buying Eric Lamella from his old club for thirty million pounds, and that signing was a total disaster. At least last season it was. Maybe it's maybe it's beginning. The relevance good. to Liverpool here, because we were talking about how Brendan Rodgers had maybe begun to sound a little bit like Andre Villas Boas in his in his last uh, month or so at Tottenham, where this became increasingly obvious that I didn't buy these players. They're playing badly, but I didn't want them. I wanted different players. Now Rogers hasn't quite got as open about this as well, Phils boss but I thought it was interesting. And I wonder if maybe one day we'll hear Brendan Rogers say something similar. But there's one other thing on this before we get to Rogers himself. Gus Poyet, the son of the manager, um, he's telling a journalist, Don't call me a manager. I am the head coach. I'm not going to be a head coach when it suits and a manager when it doesn't. That side is down to recruitment. I want more quality. Do I think I'll get it? I don't know. You know what's missing. It's clear what we need to do, but it's down to recruitment. So if you ever get the chance to speak to anyone on the recruitment side and ask them about it, you're lucky. If you don't, don't ask me. So here's another guy, another guy uh, attacking his club for apparently not, you know, getting players he doesn't want or not getting the players that he does want. It seems to be becoming kind of an endemic thing. Not that Brendan Rodgers, of course, is talking talking about it at the moment because... Luckily for him, Liverpool won the match last night, so he doesn't need to sort of explain the defeat in terms of well, you know, I'm not sure. Who, I'm not sure why these players. I are can there.
4: only dance with the guards that are in the hall. Brendan Rodgers.
5: <laughs> you know, I've I, you know, we I've, I've done my absolute best out there, but you know, we, the club's got to work with me. The well, club's got to meet me halfway. So he, none of that from Rodgers because he's saying and said. Um, A wonderful display, as good as I've seen this season in that first half. Liverpool's goal, the first goal they scored by Sterling, was a 51-pass move. It is against Bournemouth, admittedly. Um, But, you know, 51, that's pretty good, isn't it? Uh, Markovic then scored his first goal. Maybe signs of hope there that he's going to come in. And then Sterling scored again, to bury uh, John Bruin's suggestion, uh, from Monday that uh, the, his series of misses at Old Trafford would uh, would um, get into his Are head. Are you listening, John? Yeah, Are you listening?
4: Pointless sticking it to well, John Bruin It's, like, for a no it's like Brendan
5: Rogers said. Raheem Sterling is a kid that, for some reason, seems to have been getting a lot of stick this season. Addresses Rogers, I think, probably to Bruin <laughs> and the other critics. His contract <laughs> situation has nothing to do with him. Uh, uh, that, that's uh, his representatives is the one working the club. he was unfortunate not to score at Old Trafford but he was a real threat there he plays in that role Alexis Sanchez enjoys for Arsenal not as an out and out striker but where his speed and movement cause problems his ability to turn and drop in his threat and the counter attack he's been the real catalyst for us this season
1: I like it one more story uh, preferably involving Michael Garcia of FIFA because we want to talk well not of FIFA uh, very much not a FIFA now. We're going to be talking about this with uh, Philippe o'claire in a little while.
5: FIFA. Um, Michael Garcia is the chairman of FIFA's uh, Ethics Committee Investigatory Chamber. There is also the chamber, chairman of the FIFA Ethics Committee Adjudicatory Chamber. The adjudic- Adjudicatory Chamber. Our chairman is Hans-Joachim Eckert. He's the German judge who wrote the Summary of the report that Michael Garcia wrote.
1: Yeah, so Garcia was brought in um, to dish the, by FIFA to dish the dirt on FIFA. Uh, this top prosecutor, federal prosecutor from the US, uh, he compiled an extensive report, albeit, some would argue, not as extensive as the work the Sunday Times did. So he yeah. didn't have all the the info that the Sunday Times had in their own reports. But anyway, uh, this uh, he had his report, which wasn't to be published.
5: Uh, he wanted it published. He wanted it published. FIFA said, FIFA oh, did. we FIFA FIFA said, can't no, do no, that for we'll do legal is, reasons. Yes,
1: but what we'll do is we'll put together, Eckhart says, Listen, I'll, I'll put together, I'll, I'll do this summary. You don't want to be doing a summary of your own work. You're pretty yeah. sick of it at this stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll write a summary. Fresh eyes. Fresh eyes. Here's a few pages on it. <laughs> that came out and pretty much largely exonerated FIFA. Garcia said, wait a minute, that's
5: <laughs> not, that's not this my report at all. This isn't, this isn't yeah. what I was I saying feel, at all.
4: I feel we've captured the central truth
5: though, Michael, no? <laughs> I feel this says it a lot better than what you were trying to say, whatever yeah. that was. Um, so essentially what Garcia then did was he, he, tri- he appealed against this. Uh, then Sepp Blatter tried to try to uh, bring a disciplinary charge against him, which which was thrown out. Um, then uh, FIFA dismissed his appeal. Said, "I'm sorry, looking you know, What are you appealing about? We're not going to do anything about that." So now Garcia has resigned. He said, "Look, this is a this is just. Well, he's put out a big statement. Uh, anyway, he said essentially says for the first two years I felt we were making real progress. Uh, that's changed in the last couple of months." Um, a lot of detail. He, I disagree with the Appeal Committee's decision. Um, and he says, the last paragraph, it now appears that at least for the foreseeable future, the Eckert decision will stand as a final word on the 2018-2022 World Cup bidding process. And while the Appeal Committee's decision notes that further appeal may be taken to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, I've concluded such a course of action would not be practicable in this case. No, gover- no independent governance committee, investigator, or arbitration panel can change the culture of an organisation. And while the November 13, 2014 Eckert decision made me lose confidence in the independence of the adjudicatory chamber... It's a lack of leadership on these issues within FIFA that leads me to conclude my role in this process is at an end. Now, what he's saying there about the adjudicatory chamber, I know any sentence that includes those words is, doesn't sound that interesting, but it is quite interesting. This guy, Eckert, is a judge. I mean, a, a, a senior legal figure from the German legal world. And Garcia is casting aspersions on his independence. Mm. He's saying he gave FIFA the report they wanted, which is scandalous. That's scandalous. You know, if that if that was the case, you know what kind of a judge is this guy? You know, this sort of Nick Riviera figure of or Lionel Hutz, who somehow has you know bew- you know bewigged and giving FIFA what they want. That's a, that's a so that guy, as far as I can see, has to respond. I mean, there has yeah. to be he can't he can't allow that to stand.
1: And it is interesting. I think you are right to highlight that because I know. I know myself when these FIFA stories come up there's almost so much of it and you're wondering what's the, what are the interesting parts what should I be interested in and I don't. we don't need to tell our listeners what they should be interested in or not but it is I, I'm fascinated by this I'm fascinated by Garcia stepping down Philippe O'Claire actually interviewed him uh, a couple of years back uh, I, I didn't quite understand at the time we'll talk to Philippe about this anyway I didn't quite understand why Garcia was getting involved with FIFA mm. whether he hadn't fully re- researched what they're all about but um, we'll get to that in a little while that's the end of Kennedy's report on sport
5: Hairdryer is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by a blast of temper.
1: The hairdryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hairdryer,
4: I think, at David Beckham. He
1: threw a hairdryer at David Beckham uh,
4: in the... Is that right?
1: No, 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 no. Dion Vanning joins us now, Dion, to chat about Brendan Rodgers. Um, we mentioned this Villas-Boas interview earlier on where he bemoans his lack of power at spurs in the transfer market when he was there he says that that's why he didn't succeed he just wasn't able to get the players in that he wanted and he did have to get other ones in instead obviously can you imagine brendan rogers giving a similar interview having departed liverpool sometime in 2016 maybe
3: uh possibly although it'd be interesting to see who he who he would put forward as uh, as players he wanted to get that liverpool didn't get because i think that's where the kind of case for brendan rogers versus a transfer committee kind of falls to the ground because he doesn't really, he can't really point to any players. And, you know, Ashley Williams, uh, is, is somebody who's sometimes put forward as, as a player he might, might have signed but then they say that Lovren was a player he wanted anyway. So, uh, I don't think, I think when you look at what this, says, you say, okay, if they would got people like, uh, Oscar and Matinho, uh, they would have been a better side and they're the players he wanted to get. And Spurs did get quite close to signing Matinho, I think. um, but there isn't that, there, there's, there's nobody in the Brendan Rodgers file uh, that you can say, oh, Liverpool would be so much better uh, with those players. And the other thing about Phyllis Boas is this is a common enough thing with managers. There's so many people that are targets that players, clubs come close to getting uh, that you know it is kind of futile sometimes to say, well, we could have had him, we could have had him. But I don't think that's the case with Rodgers. I don't know who he would be pointing to, uh, you know, Clint Dempsey.
5: <laughs> so you don't have sympathy for this sort of view, which is, I'd say, reasonably widespread. At the moment that Rogers has been kind of done up like a kipper by the by his employers. That uh, he um, he he made it a condition that he wasn't going to work with the director of football, and they said, okay and great to that. But then instead, replaced the director of football with something very similar, but but even worse.
3: No, I don't have I don't have much sympathy because I think I I, I wonder. How he's approached it, because you look at you take for example the Balotelli signing in the summer uh, when you know by by, by you know, most accounts what what happened there is Rogers has told well if you want a striker it's Balotelli or nobody now Rogers uh, is, has is just managed a team that's come second in the league they've had a title challenge but nobody expects him to have a title challenge he he he's in a position of strength there and he can say well no I don't want Balotelli and if you don't sign a striker that I want and here's somebody I'd like to sign uh, I'm going to quit and why why doesn't he do why why he, he is he is the problem with Rogers is he he has he tried to be kind of all things to all men and ultimately he's, he, he it kind of he falls he falls down everywhere because you, you can't keep keep going with that and, and succeed. And I, I think that's why I don't really have sympathy. The transfer committee is a mess. There's no, there's no doubt about it. The whole thing needs to go primarily because I haven't signed the players. I haven't succeeded in what they're supposed to be doing. But Rogers is part of that. Rogers can't really point to anything and say, uh, well, this is, this is how it would have been done if I'd been in charge.
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting, Dion, just a, a point related to that. I mean, we're talking... There's an assumption, I think, that all managers, particularly in the British game, want to be in charge of everything and they want to make all the calls, they want to uh, make all the transfers themselves or certainly pick out their targets and have those targets bought by the chairman as it used to be. Is that necessarily the case, though? This guy's Coach Rogers and his strengths, his self-admitted strengths lie in coaching players, particularly young players. Maybe he likes the idea uh, of... I Carlo Ancelotti is a, a figure who seems happy enough to go around football without having to think too much about who he wants to buy, but just integrate the players within his team. And maybe this maybe that's what Rodgers really wants all along. He doesn't want any say over transfers.
3: Well, then he could, could have taken the job as, as the way it was first proposed to him at Liverpool. Because when uh, he came into the running, it was on the on, you know at that point Liverpool were going to get a director of football. Uh, Rodgers' reluctance. To work with that model meant they abandoned that. If he, if he feels that's his strength, then he should have said, "Well, look, I'm useless at the transfer market. If you if you allow me the final say in transfers, we'll end up with Joe Allen and, and Fabio Barini. So don't let me near transfers. Just leave me on on the training ground." Yeah. And and but they did. He didn't do that. He he said, "I'm the man who ha- I have to have. This, I have the say." And he's more or less. Uh, Persisted with that line, except you know when it doesn't suit him. When he you know he, he suggests players like Balotelli or Sacco, uh, other players. You know this is what the what the club wanted. Um, and you know there, there are there are a number of the, the whole thing is uh, their their whole recruitment policy is a mess because it doesn't it doesn't seem to be you know you look you look at the signing of Sacco and Lovren in, in successive years. Lovren was signed you know Southampton signed him a year before for seven million. Liverpool played twenty million for him. Uh, they signed two. They signed two left-sided centre backs in, in, in you know in successive summers for you know a combined figure of close to forty million. And it doesn't seem to be. You look at all the things that FSG were supposed to be, and this is this is Roger's fault. You look at all the things they were supposed to be analytical. You know, using metrics, finding you know competitive advantages where where the, you know other people couldn't see them, and they've done the exact opposite. They have done everything you wouldn't you would expect. You know. Some you know, you know, sort of, the way a, you know a drunk in a casino would behave. Like that's how they've sort of behaved in in the transfer market. Uh,
5: I mean, the idea was to use the Arsenal model. That was what they were saying. You know, when they when they sort of took over. Of course, Arsenal haven't actually won the league since 2004, um, <clears throat> and there are well documented problems with what they're doing. Um, even though it seems to be working quite well, uh, it doesn't seem to be making many people happy. Now, there is another view out there, uh, which is that what we're doing by talking about Brendan Rodgers and the transfer committee and things like that, as though they actually mattered, is is missing the, the big point. And uh, this is a kind of a deterministic view, which is put forward by, uh, say, people like Paul Tompkins, who's a blogger that a lot of uh, Liverpool f- uh, supporters would be familiar with, who uh, claims essentially that it's impossible for Liverpool, Arsenal, Tottenham, any of these teams to win the league. It doesn't matter who their manager is, uh, because uh, the financial advantages... Uh, enjoyed by Chelsea, Manchester City, and Manchester United are so enormous um, that it, it essentially renders it. Uh, they're the only teams; those three teams are the only teams with squads uh, expensive enough and deep enough to actually win the league. That this is all—it it doesn't matter who you know. It's like arguing over who's the captain of the Titanic. You know, there's only one place this is going to go. It doesn't matter who it is.
3: Well, th- there is there is some there is some merit in that because you look at you look at how Manchester. City- did have won the title despite uh you, you especially if you consider the the management of, of Roberto Mancini and how erratic that was and you ask yourself would he have worked as a manager in a club that didn't have the the spending power that Manchester City had so uh there is there is something to be said for that and i think you know i know uh there are there i know like managers in in the top 4 who you know who did work in the top 4 who would who would say that you know we we have to we have to say we want to win the league but we know that when it comes up against when we come you know we can't compete with manchester city and chelsea um, but there's an interesting difference between arsenal and liverpool when you look at you know arsenal's consistency qualifying for the for the champions league finishing fourth but never really having a a, sort of a title challenge something disruptive to to the, the top 2 if you like that liverpool did last season never really pushing for a title now, do you accept that if you do that, you're going to fall back as Liverpool have this year, and that's worse uh, than than Arsenal than anything that happens to Arsenal? Or do you think Arsenal should be able to do that whilst remaining in the top four? I think I think that's the thing for for supporters of those clubs. They don't necessarily think they should be challenging for the title every year like Chelsea or Manchester City. But there is there are there are moments when you can punch above your weight if you like, and I think. From Arsenal's point of view, they haven't they haven't done that too often, uh, and Liverpool did it last season. But you know, have 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 just blown it uh, in, in the aftermath. Yeah,
5: I mean, I suppose the, the point really rests on the fact that the, the sort of the multiple, um, the the kind of multiple challenges that that a club in that position has to get past. I mean, in order for Liverpool to not win the league last season, Manchester United have to have their worst season for thirty years. Um, you know, Manchester City and Chelsea were pretty inconsistent as well. I mean, Mourinho was talking throughout the season about how his team was, was a kind of an embryonic uh, affair. and Still a, still a high points total. I
1: mean, it's, not, it's not as though Liverpool had to do nothing to get to where they were.
5: No, and, that, and Liverpool had, uh, you know, maybe the best player in the world last season uh, playing really well. Um and all those things needed to be in place in order for Liverpool to finish second. But I, I still kind of think that that last season shows that in fact this sort of deterministic theory is wrong. You can, it, it is possible. I mean, they they should. At the end, it was Liverpool who blew it. You know, not the others. Um, they were in position to do it. I mean, I'm sort of saying, well, they didn't do it, but the fact they nearly did proves they could have done. I don't and know. Therefore, they might I, I, I'm be not in sure. the future. I mean, yeah, but you know, it, to, to say that it's impossible seems to me to be—I mean, based on last season, totally wrong.
3: No, I don't. I don't think it's impossible. I think the, the, it comes down to what, and I suppose this is a lot to do with how managers actually see things and how clubs actually see things, and regarding managing expectations and the, the, the reality that expectations can destroy you as, as, as a manager too. So, if your expectations are too high. Uh, if your supporters' expectations are too high, um, that 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 is very destructive for for a manager who fails to meet them. So you want to kind of, whilst appearing to to be ambitious, you also want to say, well, look, this is what this is the reality of it. I do think you can make a challenge. I think you know if you look if you look back at you know say you look back at Liverpool's previous when with, you know close closest title challenge in recent years in two thousand and nine. Uh, Chelsea, I think Chelsea that year were that was the year uh, I think Scolari was was the were coach for for half the season, um, so you know again they were disrupted you know they they were disrupted there was no Manchester City um, and you know they they challenge United so did, those things do need to happen whether you can there's no reason why that can't happen now, especially this is more more uh, appropriate for Arsenal really there's no reason why that can't happen. Occasionally, whilst remaining in the top as a top four club, I don't see why Arsenal can't break out of uh, their traditional position once in a while and actually go on a real title title charge. Liverpool should expect that if they if they had sort of solidified um, this season and actually kind of stayed in the top four, that maybe would be the way you you would expect it. But I don't think you can expect a title challenge every year, and I think this season will be a good year when you would expect you know you will see that the top two. Uh, kind of keep away from the rest.
1: Dion, great stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers, guys. Uh, beautiful use of words, as everybody Dion finding there, comparing the transfer committee, well, the, the, their, um, <laughs> their movements lately to a drunk in a casino, uh, which I quite liked. Ken, when you used, speaking of phraseology, when you said, there's another view out there, mm-hmm. that, gave me, that gave me the shivers a little bit.
5: Mm-hmm. Because
1: anytime anyone uses that phrase, all I think of is Bill Hurley saying to Eamon Dunphy, there's another view out there.
5: I know who wrote it. Whose view?
1: Whose view is it? And so begins uh, one of the scariest but most entertaining
4: yeah. bits of TV I've ever seen. Alternative view, wasn't that the phrase? Was it alternative? There's an alternative, alternative yeah, view. Yeah, yeah. Either way, though, you that sort of that sort of tone. I, I, I understand where you're coming from on.
5: I'll try to say maybe a different take or another. No,
4: you can no, keep going with it. But just if you ever see me uh,
1: react uh, yeah. with an involuntary shudder, you'll know yeah. why. The you seem pretty convinced, though, that the. Um, Tompkins school of thought is, is incorrect.
5: I mean that's what most well, of well I don't know. I mean it's it's like it's not as though Liverpool not winning the league proves that they can. That though <laughs> it's it's hard to stand that one up. Um but it seems like the kind of thing that's true until it isn't. I mean it's it's improbable clearly for a team that isn't Chelsea or Mesh. But say City, the Manchester soccer Manchester guys,
1: for example, I mean they did a lot of work on this. Hmm. Would they come to the same conclusion that if you just don't have the same transfer fees if you don't have the same transfer might you're not going to well they, i
5: mean time. the 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 main the the big argument that stockonomics is making on this is that transfer fees aren't actually as important as um managers uh, no wages salaries managers. salaries are the, the oh, i'm sorry managers weren't important managers weren't, weren't hugely important. important they're they're only important for a couple of percentage points but of course a couple of percentage points can actually be quite important uh, so I don't know. It's it's a complicated area, but it seems to me like it's it's true until it's not.
4: Yeah, and I think to be fair, Liverpool are five points up with three games to go last yeah. year in the league. You should I, mean, really. I, I don't think that that you can't say that. Oh, over the course of the last three games, what really happened was Jordan Henderson got suspended. Therefore, Liverpool didn't have anyone to replace him. Therefore, mm. they lost the league. Mm. I mean, you can make the argument, but you're three Jordan, against-
5: Jordan Henderson getting suspended was one of a number of things that went went yeah. wrong at that point and I mean they they were they've been odds on to win the league so uh, and I mean if you know Luis Suarez's book talks about how <laughs> you know it wasn't as though they were kind of saying congratulations everybody like Brendan Rodgers got them together in a training session to turn around and give yourselves a pat on the back congratulations because we are the champions but it wasn't too far off you know even Suarez himself uh, talks about how he, he was asking one of the club officials you know listen what are we going to do with this i've got to get to uruguay but you know we're going to have this open top bus thing you know what's what's going to be the story with all that you know the day after the, the things because i need to join up with the world cup squad and then afterwards he's like I- I can't actually believe that I, I asked that guy about that. I mean, I had to because just to do with booking flights and stuff but still, it is kind of tempting fate. You know, I hope nothing goes wrong over the next three games. <laughs> so, yeah.
4: If
1: you're a lover of great sports books,
5: we've got our 2014 sports book podcast out later today. I'm looking forward to that
1: one featuring a little on the best of this year and a lot on some all-time classics, as chosen by Lawrence Donegan and Malachi Clerk, two of our favourite writers, we're going to talk now about Michael Garcia, who has resigned as chairman of FIFA's ethics committee. We're joined by Philippe O'Claire, who is um, well acquainted with this with this story. To ch- chat a little bit about, well, I guess the first question, Philippe, is how significant is this that Garcia stepped down? Uh,
2: very significant indeed, and uh, quite worrying, in fact, because. Um, regardless of the reservations many people had at the beginning about Michael Garcia, seeing him as uh, somebody who'd been hired to uh, sweep everything under the carpet. What he'd done since then uh, had shown that he was uh, certainly taking his job very, very seriously. Um, and um, with him, I must say, uh, goes the hope of the process that was started with his appointment uh, going any further, at least uh, in the next few months, and perhaps before the... Uh, the election to the FIFA presidency, which is taking place in May, uh, 2015. So yes, yeah, it is, I mean, to quote, actually, uh, Sunil Gulati, the, uh, American member of executive committee and Jerome Champagne, who is the only declared candidate against Blatter. It's a step backwards and it's a big, big step backwards, uh, which will have pleased, no doubt, quite a few people, um, who are not too keen on having Michael Garcia carrying on his investigation, uh, some members of the executive committee, we can give their names, like Angela Maria Villalona, like Warawi Makoudi, uh, like Monsieur Dog, the Belgian, who are all uh, people uh, at whom uh, Michael Garcia had pointed the finger in his report. And of course the question now is, this famous report, 430 pages, of which only a very small proportion has been made public uh, by Hans-Joachimeket, the, the chairman of the education committee, um, we, what is going to happen to it? I mean, we should have an indication of that in, in in not too long, because there's at the moment, as you know, a meeting of the executive committee in Morocco, at which uh, the publication of this report, with uh, names of witnesses redacted, as they say, uh, will be discussed. But it is it is a it is a very significant event, and I must say, it is one that uh, should fill everybody with sadness, because there was genuine hope in Michael Garcia. He obviously feels he simply he hasn't been given the powers to do his job properly. Um, In his statement, which is a very strongly worded statement, he basically uh, accuses FIFA of having a culture which makes any kind of reform uh, by an independent outside body impossible. So, yes, very, very significant indeed.
5: Philippe, what I find curious about this is you mentioned the name there of Hans-Joachim Eckert. Um, the chairman of the adjudicatory uh, committee or the adjudicatory chairman, or I think he's got a quite, quite similar position to what Garcia had, but in a slightly different capacity. And he's the author of this summary of the report, which Garcia had, had such a problem with. Now, uh, Hans-Joachim Eckert is a judge, a German judge. Um, he would have thought in, in the same way as Garcia is an attorney from the United States, uh, an impartial sort of legal authority. Um, it raises questions about his, about his his role. I think. I mean, if he he's he's published a report which Garcia's a summary rather of Garcia's report, which Garcia says doesn't really reflect the contents of the report and is misleading and inaccurate and so on. Uh, I mean, I would have expected better from a from a, from a German judge. I mean, you know, how could a, how could a judge, an impartial legal figure as such as that, be be helping FIFA to cover up things they wanted covered up?
2: And and danger is on reputation as well and uh, which was a very solid reputation indeed, until uh, it became apparent that there were, I mean, the two men, Garcia and Eckert, were at loggerheads, and obviously they had a very different uh, appreciation of the job they were supposed to do, I suppose coming from two very distinct uh, traditions, if you will, uh, of, uh, of uh, the judicial process. Um, I think Eckert is very much somebody who was interested in the minutiae of of the details and the fact that every rule was respected, every regulation was adhered to and so forth, to the point that he completely lost uh, uh, any idea of the bigger picture. Uh, Whereas Garcia, uh, with his background, I mean, yes, um, he was... uh, uh the general uh attorney for the Southern Southern District of New York. He was also he had a very big position at Interpol. He was one of the people of the most important investigators in uh counter terrorism uh, in America as well. So we have people with completely different backgrounds. It became actually I must say and quite quite obvious quite early on because I met Michael Garcia on several occasions during his investigation, uh just for progress reports, not details, unfortunately I can't give you those but to have an idea of how it was going. And it was clear uh, that there were some tensions between the two men and the way they considered the, you know, the nature of their job. And um, it is very worrying and very surprising, I must say, that Mr. Eckert uh, published that report, Uh, not just the fact it was lacunary and erroneous, but also the fact, for example, that he basically identified two whistleblowers, putting their safety at risk, and therefore breaching regulations that FIFA had insisted made the publication of the report impossible, which is more than paradoxical. It's very suspect. And, uh, yes, I mean, Mr. Eckert's reputation has suffered from that a lot. As to FIFA's reputation, what was left of it, I think it's it's now in tatters. Um, uh, Jérôme Valk, the general secretary, recently said that he couldn't see how FIFA could stoop lower than than it, than it had already. Well, he was wrong. Uh, they've managed to find another depth to sink to.
1: Philippe, you mentioned that you uh, met him many times and I read an interview you did with him in uh, in, in the Blizzard magazine, uh, which was fascinating for a, a couple of reasons. Chief among them, as I read about his background as you performed there and, and the conversation you had with him, I was thinking, has this guy not done his research on FIFA what's he expecting you know if, if he is going to be as thorough as he says he's going to be uh, what what's he actually does, does he not realise what it is that FIFA probably want him for and in that in that sense it seems to me I'm, I'm almost surprised how surprised he is with how it's all ended
2: I think that he when he arrived at the job uh, don't forget it's we're talking about somebody who knew very little if anything about soccer yeah. <laughs> and uh, the game and also the way it is uh, governed by FIFA. And this was for him, he, le- he learned of the job, so to speak. He-, he discovered the way, I mean, the secrecy of that uh, organization, its hatred of any kind of transparency, um, the arrangements made by-, by these people in small committees, uh, the fact that power is concentrated in the hands of, so- of really very, very few people indeed. And uh, I think it-, it came to him uh, as-, as-, as he went along, and, but it's only later on, I think, in the stage of his investigation that he realized that the problem was really systemic and that he couldn't possibly go as far as he wanted to. Um, I would say probably over the last three or four months, uh, when after he had finished, uh, writing his first version of the report and then the, the process of toing and froing with Mr. Eckert to see uh, which measures should be taken, which sanctions should be taken, which individuals perhaps should be the subject of further investigation Uh, it's only then that I think it dawned upon him well actually I can't do this job Uh, and uh, he tried, he tried to fight his way, you will remember that when the resume was published by Mr Eckert, the the way in which he he dismissed it very very strongly and it was clear from that moment onwards that um, he had understood the true nature of the beast
1: Yeah, okay Philippe we'll leave it there, brilliant stuff thanks a million.
2: Thank you very much guys
1: yeah, speaking to Philippe there, it it doesn't essentially what I mentioned early on in the show seems to have been borne out here that Garcia, despite being a very intelligent man, again and a very dogged prosecutor uh, and uh, a very important person uh, amongst the, uh, you know, f- the amongst their type in the US, didn't seem to really read even an article about FIFA before deciding he was going to yeah. join their ethics committee. Yeah. I mean, if he had, he would have... It just seems incredible to me that it was only after a year or two that he realised um, the you I mean, know, there's some the forces here. here. Yeah, It happens, it's, for example, in the UCI, it happened before it even got off the ground. I mean, they had their, their committee with... Uh, I'm trying to remember, There's some some um, extremely uh, sort of upright, upstanding members of society involved in that. Uh, Tony Gray Thompson, I think, was one of them, yeah. And it was, it was seen as well. Geez, I suppose if the UCI, I mean, this and Pat McQuaid's days, are getting them involved... And then mm, a few months later, well, they were given no power, no anything, yeah. uh, no no real. Anyway, the, the, but in this case, it seemed to take a lot longer, and there was a report produced. Um, but at some point, Garcia came to the conclusion. Yeah,
5: yeah. I mean, I, I wonder has Pasito Domingo made any impact yet? Because I remember the step-by-step-bladder wanted to get Pasito Domingo involved. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> Domingo and and uh, Henry Kissinger were his suggestions uh, uh, for guys who might. Helped to help the ethical situation. Was
1: there any reasoning behind Placido Domingo? Uh, he just—I think he just fan? quite
5: liked Placido Domingo, and uh, you know, he he'd got a history of doing. He's a passionate football fan, and he had a history of of doing songs, which were big hits around World Cup time. I don't know. I mean, the one the one thing I, I think when I look at this is this report has got to leak. There are too many people who want the report to leak, for it not to leak, like FIFA are saying, we want this kept secret. And I'm sure they do, but the mere fact that they want to get secret makes it interesting what's in it that they're trying to hide.
1: But FIFA have such power, right? This is, and you know, I say I compared it to the UCI It's uh, earlier on. I mean, it's obviously a totally different, totally different stratosphere of of power within sport. And I know people in, uh, in cycling, uh, probably fair enough, I've made the point over the past, well, uh, you know, if, if people were investigating other sports to the same extent they investigate cycling, then maybe something would happen. And I'd imagine something that, certainly in football, something that would, prevent people doing this kind of work and it is done but uh, you know more is, is the amount of grief you have to take the amount of battles you have to mm. undertake and the Sunday Times have done a great job of it and other people have done it sporadically over the years but FIFA are incredibly powerful um, just as a forgetting about sport just as as a group and might find a way to suppress that
5: no? I don't know I think I think it's difficult to suppress it's, it's, it's increasingly difficult to suppress information of that nature I think um just, there's, there's quite a lot of copies of it. You do need one copy to find its way to... How somebody. many people
1: do you think have read that full report?
5: Hundreds? Oh, I'd say almost nobody. I mean, who would read a boring report like that? <laughs> I mean, if you're asking me who's read the full report, barely anybody.
1: Well, well then who's going to well, well, leak it? Nobody's bothered to read Apparently it. Apparently
5: not even the guy who wrote the summary. No. <laughs>
1: Garcia is the only man who wrote this report, sent it in, nobody really read it.
5: Um, but, you know, this, this, obviously copies of the report exist, and um, I can't see how... This isn't going to come out. I suppose the question is how long, you know. I suppose if it, if it was only to emerge months or years down the line, then maybe people don't care about a report that was, you know. But if it was to come out soon enough, yeah, you know, it'd be interesting. The Sunday Times would shift a few copies.
1: Yeah, that's the end of this podcast. We've got the sports book show coming out later on today, so do have a listen out for, for that one. Um, thank you very much, Karen. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken.
5: Thank you, Kara. Thank you, Owen.
1: Thanks very much for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at SecondCaptains and check out SecondCaptains.com. If you get a chance at all, we'll chat to you soon. Cheers. <laughs> it's is that, is the second time it's gone off. never
2: go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those those,
5: those go